0: And uh, it's one that shows why serving a church is so glorious, but also such a weighty responsibility. And I think it's one of the clearest passages in the New Testament on what a pastor does. Not so much on what makes a person a pastor, what qualifies a person to be a pastor, but on what a pastor does and really the motivation for why he does it. So I'm going to read Acts 20, verses 17 through the end of the chapter verse 38. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. This is Paul. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life. Of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease, night or day, And remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. In the late 1880s, a small town in western Pennsylvania called Johnstown was a booming steel and iron town, filled with young families as the dads worked, husbands worked in these mills, and gave the Pittsburgh Steelers their names through this industry. And uh, this town was continuing to boom and blossom, but they did have a problem. And the problem was in the form of a lake up at the top of a mountain, basically. So Johnstown is in a valley, and up above them was the South Fork Dam. And this dam had been built kind of hastily, kind of haphazardly, without a lot of care, without a lot of thought, and without a lot of maintenance. And so over the years, there was kind of a running joke that this is the year the dam is going to break, and everyone would laugh every time, and they would move on with their lives. I don't know if you remember last May, there was a really significant rainstorm where it just Kept raining. It was like all of us had water in our basements, at least we did, and our church did, and it was just a mess. That was like that, except it just kept on going day after day. And so by about lunchtime, one particular day in 1889, May of 1889, water was 2 to 10 feet deep, depending on where you were in the streets. So you'd watch fully grown men walking across streets, and it was like they were walking through a swimming pool, trying to get from one side of the street to the other. And it was still raining. And so then the threat of that dam at the top of the mountain really became interesting. And so, as was typical, a lady walked into the general store and said, today's the day the dam is going to break. And everybody busted up laughing again. And they went on with their lives. Well, then that day, a telegraph came from one of the, the telegraph stations further up the valley that said, South Fork Dam is liable to break. Notify the people of Johnstown to prepare for the worst. This lake up at the top, which was man-made so that people like Andrew Mellon and Andrew Carnegie and these tycoons of the day could have a nice place to go fishing and boating, was up to 70 feet deep in places. Now they're saying this thing could break any time. And people just went on with their lives. Essentially, what that telegraph was saying was, you have a very limited amount of time to get people to safety. You should do it now. Spiritual dangers are all around you, just like the water of a dam breaking was all around those people that day in May of 1889. And Paul gathered together a group of elders to tell them that those spiritual dangers are real, and are more deadly, more deadly serious than you can possibly imagine. And so Paul gathered these elders of the church from Ephesus to remind them of a reality that they surely already knew. There's danger all over, all around you, and it's piercing in its seriousness. But he also knew that God himself had custom designed the response, a way to protect his people from those dangers. God has provided elders, God has provided pastors, as in other words, we'll get to that, the same group of people, elders, pastors, he's provided a group of qualified men to protect God's people from those deadly, serious dangers all around us. And so what this passage calls for us to do then is to carefully shepherd God's flock in the face of the dangers that our people and that we ourselves are facing And so the question that we should ask ourselves, I think, as we read this passage, is how do I carefully shepherd God's flock? I think that's the question that we should rightly try and answer together from this passage. Before we do that, let me just go back to what I was saying a moment ago, because I grew up in a church where there were pastors and then deacons. The pastors were all paid staff, and I think most of us probably can relate to this in some way probably seen it play out in some way. And so basically you had the pastors, then you had the deacons who were in many ways kind of an advisory board. Some churches use even the term elders, but they're on a second tier in some senses where you have the paid pastors, then you have the lay pastors or lay elders, and they basically approve the decisions, approve the agenda for the pastor. And then he does you know the real work while they're just kind of the advisory board. And what I would say is that distinction is not clear in the Bible. What you see in the Bible is a group of qualified men who love God's word, who are qualified by God's word through biblical qualifications, and who have a series of spiritual responsibilities together. And so these are people who, are, who may not meet man-made standards of wealth or social standing or achievement, but God does have different standards than men. And even in preparing for this conference, one of the brothers in our church reminded me, God has different standards of what a good day is going to look like at an event like this. And we need to keep that in mind with with regard to elders as well. And so I believe that the New Testament is clear. Though it doesn't talk about elders in every passage in the New Testament, when the New Testament talks about elders, it's clear and it's consistent. And so what it teaches, what the New Testament teaches, is that elders are a group of biblically qualified men who have a particular set of biblical responsibilities. They are to know and lead and teach and feed and protect and equip God's people. These are the kinds of words that God has given us in the New Testament when describing what an elder does. And so, again, I I grew up in a church that didn't have a plurality of elders. You had several pastors who were paid, but didn't have a plurality of elders. Then I pastored a church in New Jersey, where I was the only pastor, and I had my advisory board group of deacons. So I, I think I can you know, talk about this from both sides of the aisle, so to speak, that I've played this out. I've seen it play out. But then I also have kept reading the Bible, which is what we want to do and see, okay, so the Bible is actually pretty clear. And again, it's, it's consistent that the Bible teaches shared responsibility and shared burden when it comes to ministry responsibilities. And so if you need more motivation besides the Bible teaches it, in my opinion, let me give a couple other reasons why I think a plurality of elders, a group of biblically qualified men, should be leading your church. And one is to fight against loneliness and pride. I think most of us in this room can identify with the loneliness of ministry and the sense of no one really knows what I'm feeling right now. And I don't really have anybody I can talk to about it. And this this past, or the idea of a plurality of elders helps guard against that. And then it also helps guard against pride. Isn't there something about I am the one who has the power to make decisions? Isn't that something that the world loves to Propagate. And so, you know, it makes sense for an organization like, you know, Sears or, or some, some other corrupt company that's falling apart, I guess, um, to, to have somebody at the top. That makes sense from a worldly standard. But in a biblical standard, what the Bible shows consistently and clearly is a group of men who guard each other against pride by sharing responsibility and by sharing the burden of ministry. And then, again, sort of in line with the idea of fighting loneliness and pride, having a plurality of elders is a blessing because you have someone to hold you accountable. There's a mutual accountability. And so you have shepherds shepherding shepherds. You have pastors pastoring pastors. And this is the way that I think the New Testament teaches us. And one book that has been helpful to me over the last several years on this topic is Embracing Shared Ministry by Joseph Hellerman. I think he's at, like, Biola, if I remember correctly. Um, I don't know anything else about this guy, but this book was helpful in terms of talking about what it looks like to shepherd as friends, as spiritual family members together. Before you talk about people as being vision casters or or uh, decision makers. So with that, free plug for plurality of elders, which I think most of us are probably on the same page about that. But if So let me just back up. I thought I was a young man until I came into this room and like half the great guys in here are younger. So if you're younger and maybe you haven't heard this idea, talked about a whole lot or you grew up in a church, similar ones that I've been in in the past, uh, perhaps that's helpful to you. I realize that many of you probably could have said what I just said a lot better than I just said it. But uh, what I want to say is with that foundation in place, let's go back to this question that we're asking of how do I carefully shepherd God's flock? How do I protect God's people in the face of the spiritual dangers that are all around us? And so I think this passage gives us three ways by which we shepherd God's people. And the first is you shepherd God's flock by tending to your own soul and way of life. Take care of your own soul and the way that you are living. This may seem like a strange place to start until you remember that before COVID, when you would actually get on airplanes, they would tell you to do this for yourself. If in the case of an emergency, put the mask on your own face, different kind of mask than we're used to now, and use that to protect yourself and then protect somebody else. You're only as helpful to somebody else as you are alive. So put the the oxygen mask on your own face. So this is where Paul starts us. Spiritually speaking, it's the same principle. You have to be watching your own soul. No one wants to see a thin chef. You're not gonna eat at that restaurant. So let's go to the guy who's larger and shows us he likes what he eats and learn from him and eat from him. And so this is the same concept that Paul teaches in 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself and the teaching. So, from this text, how do we tend to our own soul? How do we take care of our own way of life? I think there are at least five ways. One is to walk in humility. Verse 19, you know that I served the Lord with all humility. Did you know that you are not always right? you know that you are not always the wisest person in the room, that you need someone who has a different set of eyes looking at the same problem and coming at it from different life experience and different teaching background and different family relationships. All these things can factor into an important decision. I don't want to be the only person in the room making a decision that affects dozens of other people's lives and spiritual well-being. And so... Humility comes from realizing you're not the only person who's walked down a particular road. You need other people who have been there as well. If someone asks you, this is one way to check and see, am I, am I a humble person? If someone asks you an awkward question, does gratitude well up in your heart or does defensiveness well up in your heart? Like, Who are you to ask me whether I'm struggling in my marriage right now or how I'm loving my wife right now? Or have you viewed pornography recently? Or are you dealing with your money well? Do you say, who are you? Or do you say, thank you? Please keep asking those kinds of questions. And I am so thankful that I serve in a church where people ask me those kinds of questions. Certainly not everybody. A few men in particular ask those kinds of questions. And what I would say is, if you don't have anybody like that, try and find them. Try and find people who will help you stay humble And and walk in wisdom and walk in godliness. Spirit-shaped instincts tell us to be grateful when we know that there are dangerous and and, uh, vile threats around us. When we know that we are vulnerable, spirit-shaped instincts say thank you instead of how dare you when someone asks you a question like that. So walk in humility. Secondly, have a tender heart. Verse 19 says, you know, I was serving the Lord with tears. And verse 31 says, I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And I didn't used to be an emotional person. And now that I'm older, I suppose, I cry a lot more when I think about the spiritual dangers that people are in. When I think about the hardship that people are experiencing, I cried endlessly at a friend's funeral a few weeks ago when I watched his own young children, the same age as my children, and his wife, the same age as my wife, mourning the loss of of my friend, I cried a lot. And I didn't want to do that. I didn't plan to do that. I ran out of Kleenexes in my car. That's how little I I planned on crying this much. But what I'm saying is, I didn't used to be that way. The Lord has, has made me into a more tender person who's, I hope, more able to put myself in people's shoes when they're going through hard times. And... I don't think that Paul's problem was that he was overly emotional. It was that he was so tuned in to what it was like to be in danger and to suffer that he could enter into the hardships of other people's lives. And so cultivate that ability. Ask other people to help you cultivate that ability by sharing what they're going through and praying with them as you consider their suffering and their sin. So have a tender heart as you tend to your own way of life and your own soul. Third, persevere through trials. Again, verse 19 You know that the whole time I was with you, I was serving the Lord with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. When I hear that phrase about the plots of the Jews, it makes me think of Psalm 2. I just want to read a brief portion there to establish this idea. Psalm 2 begins, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? And he says what their plotting sounds like. Let us get this authority off us, get these cords of authority off of us. What this passage, what Psalm 2 tells us and what Paul is corroborating here is that those who hate God hate those who love God. And so when you are walking with God and you're seeking to serve other people and help them walk with God, it makes sense that the evil one hates you and that those who are on the side of the evil one, who are siding with evil itself, would also hate you. But Paul is saying, I walked that road. I felt the plots. I heard the rumors of how they were going to get me, so to speak. And there have always been plots against God's people. You go back to Joseph, he's thrown into a pit. You go back to David, he was pursued by Saul. You go back to Daniel, he's thrown in a lion's den. You go back to Jesus himself, and he was hung on the cross because people who hate God hate those who love God. And so as we endure the hatred of the world, as Aaron was telling us in the last hour, this is a badge of honor in a sense, that people hate you because of your affinity with truth. And so persevere through these trials in light of the fact that you are simply following in the footsteps of people like Joseph and Daniel and David and Jesus himself and Paul. Number four, as you tend to your own soul and way of life, remember that you are dispensable. Verse 24 says, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. Well, if Paul realized how important he was to the health of the church, he would not say that. No, actually, he did realize that the Lord had given him a particular kind of ministry at a particularly important time in history, but he realized, I can die and the truth will go on. That is another important sign of humility, whether we can realize that or not. The church will survive if I die. But Paul said elsewhere, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That sounds like a man who realizes I'm okay if I die because God is the one who builds the church. So Remember that you are dispensable as you tend your own soul. And fifth, remember that you are at risk. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves. Again, going back to 1 Timothy 4.16, keep a close watch on yourself, then the teaching than the other people you are responsible for. Have friends who know you, who ask you those soul-piercing questions. And again, you may need to initiate that relationship. It may need to start with somebody in a different church. It may need to start with someone else who's here that you didn't know before you walked in today, but somebody who you could say, I like that person. He seems like someone I could trust, and it seems like someone who would ask the hard questions and let them get to know you and let them pry into your life and let them ask the embarrassing questions For the sake of your own soul, for the sake of your family, for the sake of your church. I said there were five. Here's a sixth. I think this is the last one I have here. From verses 33 through 35, walk with integrity as you care for your own soul. Again, letting people ask the questions they need to ask, taking care of your responsibilities. Verse 33 talks about how he was not a covetous man. Paul wasn't living for the shiny car, the bigger house, deeper pockets. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You know I took care of myself, he said, and I took care of other people so that no one could accuse me of being a lover of money. He said, I I did this. I worked hard in this way to show you we must help the weak And remember that Jesus himself said it's better to give than to receive. So walk with integrity with regard to your time, with regard to your money, with regard to your relationships, and let people hold you accountable to all of those things. It was a life-altering time when a pastor asked me, have you looked at anything inappropriately recently? How are you doing walking with your wife, and these kinds of questions. And when I realized that person cares for my soul, I felt safe with him, not threatened. And this is the kind of relationship we need to be uh, promoting in our churches and cultivating in our own lives as well. So shepherd God's flock by paying close attention to your own heart, your own way of life. And secondly, our shepherd God's flock by paying close attention to your people. Verse 28 gives us two well, verse 28 and verse 29 give us two reasons to pay close attention to your people. And the first one is in verse 28, because they are precious. They are precious to God, and they should also be precious to us, though they have their thorns and their prickles, and though they are the part of the body that 1 Corinthians talks about that's a little less desirable. Every person is precious to God in the church. So pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. These people are precious enough for Jesus to die for them. How did Jesus buy these people? By shedding his own blood. That should show us something about how important the church is to Jesus. It is blood bought. And they're precious enough for God to give elders to protect them. It's one thing for Jesus to die for them. It's another for God to say, and there's a second level. It's kind of the idea of we want the gospel to go to new places where it's never gone before, but we also want the gospel to stay strong in places where it's already been. God wants souls to be saved, and then God wants them to be safe through the care of elders. And so know your people. In order to do this, you have to know who they are, and we'll come back to that in a moment. You have to have some sense of meaningful membership, and you have to know them. You have to have conversations with them. You have to be in their house and let them be in your house as uncomfortable as that can be. But you, you do have to know what's going on with them, whether that's through phone calls or visits or lunch appointments or conversations after the services or letters that you send on a regular basis. Even if, it, even if people figure out that you're sending a form letter with maybe one extra sentence tied to their relationship, don't you think they're going to be thankful they get a letter from you and that they know what you're thinking and how you're praying for them and what passages you've been studying and how you're growing? And so know your people, and even before you can do that, you have to know who they are. You have to know who you're responsible for. And so this is where the idea of meaningful membership comes in. And, you know, again, I've served in churches that are not doing it the way that we're doing it here, so I'm not casting stones at anybody who doesn't do it the way we do it. But what I'm saying is, what I'm asking is, can somebody just slip away in the dark, just ride off into the darkness, and no one ever follows after them? And I guess my question is, isn't that person worth you going to follow after them to the Lord? Like, doesn't the Lord consider that person's soul valuable enough that you should at least try to reach them? And maybe that starts with the text, and they don't reply to the text, and then it goes to a call, and they don't answer the phone, and so then you write a letter, and they don't reply to the letters, and then you go to their door. There comes a point where you can do nothing else, but we need to get to that point sometimes with these brothers and sisters. You have to have some kind of a system, I believe, for how you keep track of your people. And this is one of the blessings of a smaller church is you actually know who they all are, (laughs) for one thing. Uh, But but also, whether they're there, whether they're answering their phone. The movies Home Alone and Home Alone 2 are entirely based on the fact that the McAllister family did not have meaningful membership. And so... (laughs) You know, if Kevin McAllister's parents did a terrible job keeping track of, however, seven kids, which I'm one of seven, you know, I don't know how many they had, but then you have the cousins mixed in as well. But those movies never would have happened if they had some better way of tracking who they were actually with and responsible for. And so the system we use is, uh, we have a relatively small congregation, and we have three elders. So what we do is we divide the membership essentially in half. And that month, then we divide, so we divide it up, between two months, the first month you're calling through half of it, and the second month you're calling through half of it. And between the three of us, we each have a set of names that we know we're responsible for that month. And one of our elders you know, keeps, keeps us accountable for who we're responsible for that month. And so essentially, you're having some kind of contact, hopefully, or at least attempted contact with everyone in the church, at least every other month. Obviously, some of those people are there every week anyway. And so you already have more interaction with some people than others. But if there's somebody who hasn't been showing up, and I, you know, sitting in the service yesterday, I thought, huh, that seat's been empty for the last three weeks. You have some kind of mental cue to say, okay, this person is someone I'm responsible for, and they're not even showing up. So let's find out what's going on and where they've been. Maybe they're on a long vacation, that's fine. But what I'm saying is I urge you to have some kind of a system for how you track who you're responsible for so that you can know them. But before that, again, you know who they are. And the book that's been most helpful for that in my experience, is this Shepherd Leader by Timothy Whitmer, uh, Achieving Effective Shepherding in Your Church. Very practical, lots of good charts you can fill out and copy and things like that. But keeping track of every member is essential, or you can't say you have meaningful membership. If somebody can just write off and say, well, it's been six months or it's been a year, or, it's been three years, and so they're gone. And you never followed after them, you never pursued them. And again, I'm not casting stones at anyone because I've been there. I've seen this play itself out myself. But at some point, you have to draw a line and say, those who are with us are here. And if you're not with us, you're not really a member. And again, making exceptions for invalids, for shut-ins, for those who are in hospitals, for long stays. There are reasons people cannot show up for a long time. Maybe they live in a different part of the country for part of the year, but you at least know that. You at least know they're in a different part of the country. And so shepherd God's flock by paying close attention to your people because they're precious. And secondly, because they are vulnerable. We need to help our people understand that the greatest challenge or the greatest threat in their lives is not a political agenda or an airborne virus or an economic collapse, but the threat of the evil one. This is the greatest threat to our people. And we need to help people think on that level. They are vulnerable, our people and ourselves. Our people are vulnerable from without, verse 29 says. After my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Where does Paul get this idea of fierce wolves? He gets it from Jesus himself in Matthew 7, Sermon on the Mount. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. There are at least a couple obvious elements to what it means to be a sheep, or a wolf in sheep's clothing. One is it's deceptive, that initially at least you don't know that someone is a threat. And then secondly, it's that there's some level of, boy, blanking out on a word here, credibility to what they're saying and what they're doing that makes them be able to hide as a, as a wolf. And what Paul is saying is you need to be able to get underneath that skin, literally, and know who the wolves are and tell your congregation you are vulnerable to this and to that. And we can't possibly keep up with all of the threats, but we can know some of them and we can talk about some of them and make applications to some of them and encourage resources about others. And so help our people understand that they are vulnerable from without. They're vulnerable to false teachers, to worldly seduction, to the spirit of the age, if we're honest, a portion of our congregation at least, listens to more podcasts than they do to our sermons, reads blogs more than they do Dane Ortlund or any other good authors, uh, they are with you for a couple hours a week, and they watch a couple hours of YouTube videos every day. There are threats to people that we can't do anything about besides talking about them, praying for them, and watching over them. So help them see those threats and see their vulnerability to them. They're also vulnerable from within. How often are church splits based on someone within the church making a mountain out of a molehill and then helping other people see it as a mountain? We've all seen this, guys, as far as I'm aware, at least as an estimated guess. (laughs) Um, Someone starts making a creative doctrine out of a pet passage out of an obscure text, or starts insisting that all true Christians must fill in the blank, and all of a sudden you have someone from within twisting, speaking twisted things, Paul says. And so ask people good questions. Help people see that they are vulnerable to various threats by asking them good questions Like when somebody else preaches, not necessarily when you preach. When someone else preaches, ask them, how did that sermon help you grow? If you ask it about your own sermon, it's going to seem a little self-serving perhaps, not necessarily, but they're going to feel a little more social pressure to um, give you some kind of a compliment or flatter you in some way. But if somebody else preached, ask them, so what did you think about that application? About and fill in the blank? What do you think when he said that Jesus is the true and better Adam? Have you ever thought about that? What do you think that means? How do you think that could help your, your walk with Christ? And just kind of dive into something from the text. And as you listen to someone preach, be thinking, how could I engage with someone after the service as they're ready to walk out the door and go get lunch? Instead, have a question ready so that you're not just saying, boy, beautiful day, enjoy it. And you don't see him again for seven days. And so... Uh, Help people put the word into practice as soon as it's being as soon as it's done being preached. So shepherd God's flock by watching over your own soul, by watching over your people, and third by placing your confidence in God and His Word. There is a tremendous emphasis in this passage on the fact that it is God's Word that does the work. It is God's spirit working through the word that changes lives. So preach that word. Verse 20. I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. Verse 24, I testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 27, I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. He talks elsewhere about proclaiming the kingdom of God. He was a man of the word, Paul was, and he wanted his people to be men and women of the word. And so declare God's word faithfully. And that means everything that is profitable. When he says, I didn't shrink from doing my job, he means I didn't avoid anything that would have been awkward to preach about. When I preached through Romans, I preached through Romans. I didn't just hop around and take my favorite passages and proof text things elsewhere. So, preach the whole counsel of God. And again, expository preaching addresses this concern. Instead of just jumping from one text or one topic to the next, or, you know, I asked a pastor in Alabama uh, three or four years ago, probably, so what are you preaching through these days? And he said, well, I just checked the news on Friday or Saturday. Help my congregation think through the news on Sunday. I just thought, that sounds awful, for one thing, to have to have that kind of pressure. And then secondly, that means you're probably picking your three or four favorite passages and milking them for everything in them, which is fine, but then you're leaving huge swaths of the Bible. Like, when are you going to preach Ecclesiastes if you're just reading the news? When are you going to preach Galatians and these kinds of things? So, expository preaching, Expositional preaching by David Helm is on the table, is that right? From uh, Jeremy, so you can pick that up if you don't have it, I assume. Give away free books for you. We need to declare God's word faithfully. We also need to declare it to both believers and non-believers. I hope that you have non-Christians in your churches. I hope that they know that they're welcome. I hope that when they're there, they know that they're being talked to, not talked over or talked about, but that actually there's applications, there's questions directed toward them so that they can know that they are loved, and that someone in your church can know, if I bring my unsaved coworker who I've been talking to about for years, and I finally cross that threshold where I can say, "Do you want to come to church with me?" that if they walk in, their unsaved coworker is going to hear the gospel from that person too. maybe even in other conversations, and hopefully in the songs, and hopefully in the way you lead the Lord's Supper, And all of these elements are helping reinforce all those evangelistic efforts from the workplace or the neighborhood. So we need to speak to unbelievers, but we also need to speak and call for repentance and faith from Christians. That may sound a little strange, but this is how Christians grow. Martin Luther said the entire life of Jesus is to be one of repentance. So we don't stop preaching repentance just because you assume that most of the people in front of you are actually Christians. Don't preach a sermon that lets your people leave not feeling the weight of responsibility to believe truth, to reject lies to walk in repentance rather than walking in stubbornness. So, for instance, again, I'm lambasting all the people I've heard preach in the past. I once heard a sermon, probably 10, 15 years ago, someone pre- preached a sermon called, What America Needs. Fine, I mean, maybe there's a passage that especially suits that, but I walked out feeling like, sweet, there's nothing I have to do. It's not my problem. What's the, what's the saying? Not my... Donkey, not my show, or not my circus, not my show, something like that, I think. My wife says that a lot. I clearly listen to what it is, but uh, I think it's not my, not my elephant, not my circus, something. But what I'm saying is, that's how I felt after that sermon, because I didn't need to repent of anything. It's not my fault that America is the way it is, and I certainly could do nothing to fix it on my level, so it sounded like something that maybe they should have heard in Congress instead of in that church. What I'm saying is, every passage has a call to repent and a call to believe truth to believe, lies to reject, ways to walk in humility and repentance rather than in, in stubbornness. So call for repentance and faith. Proclaim the truth. Your job is not to tell everything that a text says in every sermon you preach, but to certainly tell what the text says. It is your job to tell people what God has said and let the truth sit on people's hearts. So That's verse 25, where he says, I proclaimed the kingdom. And now in verse 31, he says, I did not cease to admonish everyone. To admonish someone means to warn someone, to earnestly urge someone in a particular way. And Paul's saying, that's what I did. And he's telling these brothers, that's what you should do. Be calling people, be warning people, be admonishing so preach God's word. But that's a pretty heavy responsibility. and None of us do it perfectly. And all of us have other responsibilities as well. And so what encourages us? What encourages us when we die? When Paul says, I'm ready to die. It's okay if I die. The church will be fine. What he's doing is he's commending these people to God and to his word. And so verse 32 urges us to leave the results to God. I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. And so we commend people to God. We entrust, to commend means to entrust something valuable. It's Like when you give somebody the keys to your house and say, take care of this while I'm out of town. You're putting a lot of weight on that person to give them everything you own, basically. And assume it's all going to be there when you come back or when you leave your children with a babysitter, especially for the first time, you're like checking in on Every other minute to see if your child's still breathing and if' given them food and things like that. and what Paul is saying is you're giving someone something super valuable. what he's saying is you're actually entrusting this valuable church to God himself. Let him bear the results. Bring fruit to your work. And you commend someone to the word of his grace. It's through God's word that people grow. Scripture is life-giving, it's food. So give people the milk and give people the meat again and again. What this text tells us, if Paul is willing to die and willing to move on to a different place, one of the things this tells us is that you are totally replaceable. Maybe you don't like to think of it in those terms, but you will die. You will retire or you will move or something will happen where somebody else is going to have to pick up where you were. So again, as as Paul watered and Apollos planted, you leave the results to God. And so be working now to prepare your church for the day you will die, or the day you will retire. But remember that the Lord is the one who builds people, who sustains people. Church history is full of, or maybe I can just say it this way, church history is the story of God's preserving grace. It's not the story of all the people who had it all together, And we're able to pull people along by their own power or their own persuasive personality. Church history is a story of God providentially ruling and using awful people in very complicated situations to do his work. And so God is the one who keeps the engine running, not the people he puts over his church. The gospel doesn't need your help. But that being said, we are called to proclaim it. We are called to admonish God's people and be encouraging, inviting, calling for repentance, calling for faith. This is how we take shepherding seriously. This is what we do in the face of significant, unending danger. And so when the man... Uh, I should say the men in the telegraph office in Johnstown, Pennsylvania, received that telegraph. They read it out loud, South Fork Dam is liable to break, warn the people of Johnstown to prepare for the worst. And as you'd expect, they looked each other in the eye and laughed out loud and went on with their day. When that dam stopped working, it didn't break. It just moved out of the way. And thousands upon thousands upon thousands of gallons of water rushed down the valley to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, and wiped entire neighborhoods off the map, left over 2,000 people dead, many of whom probably could have gotten out of town to a place that wasn't in a valley if they had been warned. Instead, they were huddling in each other's houses just to make sure they could get home after the, the waters receded in the streets. The waters didn't recede. They'd knocked their houses over. They had been warned. Well, the people in the telegraph office had been warned. but They failed to take that warning to the people who needed it. There was serious danger and it was completely overlooked. The danger of Satan is way worse way more deadly serious. Satan wants to consume you. Satan wants to consume your people. And Your job is to protect them, and to warn them. We are vulnerable. Our churches are vulnerable. And the danger facing us is not a potential dam breaking. It is that the evil one wants to consume you and your people. And so the challenge for us in this passage is in verse 28, you have the weight of watching over the very people for whom Christ died. What a glorious privilege and what a weighty responsibility. It makes sense that Paul was kept awake at night with this responsibility. You also have great comfort. At least to me, verse 32 is a great comfort. We labor, we lose sleep over people, we cry over people, we have tender hearts for people, but at the same time, we leave them in God's hands and we say God will do his work, in his way, in his time. He is sufficient to love these people, to sanctify these people, to guard these people. So pay attention, yes, and all the while, remember that the good shepherd himself is the one who watches over you and watches over your people. Let's pray together. Lord, we bless you again that you are the good shepherd, that you will lead us all the way home. And we pray that you would give us humility and tenderness and perseverance as pastors. As church leaders, as those training for to be church leaders. I pray that we would be warned by this passage and be warning others, be admonished and be admonishing others. I pray that we would take these charges seriously that you have given us, and that we would be in contact with our people as a means of loving you and loving them, shepherding them in so doing. I pray in Christ's name.